I'm Maeve Conran and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, October 2nd. Coming up, an interview with author Ben Goldfarb, who starts his new book saying, Beavers, the animal that doubles as an ecosystem, are ecological and hydrological Swiss Army knives capable, in the right circumstances, of tackling just about any landscape scale problem you might confront. We'll find out how. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. In this week's issue of the Journal of Archaeological Science reports, a team of researchers from Stanford claimed to have found the world's oldest brewery. The researchers were excavating in a cave near Haifa in Israel. The scientists were looking for clues into what plant foods the cave dwellers, who were semi-nomadic hunters, were eating. These people lived between the Paleolithic and Neolithic periods over 10,000 years ago. During their search, they discovered traces of a wheat and barley-based alcohol. The traces they analysed were found in stone mortars up to 24 inches deep, carved into the cave floor. The scientists believe that the mortars were used for storing, pounding and cooking different species of plants. Before this find, brewing beer was thought to go back 5,000 years. This latest discovery pushes that date back to 13,000 years ago. Because the cave was a burial site, the scientists believe the beer was brewed for ritual feasts honouring the dead. The findings also suggest beer was not necessarily a side product of making bread as previously thought. But the researchers say they cannot tell which came first. The ancient brew, which was probably more like a porridge, is not exactly what you'd call beer today. How do we know, you ask? Well, amazingly, the research team recreated the ancient brew. They say to compare it with the residues that they found. This involved germinating the grain to produce malt, then heating the mash and fermenting it with wild yeast. The resulting goo was fermented, but weaker than modern beer. And it doesn't sound nearly as good either. Astronomy challenges us to better understand ourselves and our place in the universe. Fisk Planetarium Director John Keller will lead a guided exploration of a handful of highly collaborative cutting-edge research efforts exploring beyond the horizons of current understanding. One of these, the Laser Interferometer, Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO, opened a new era of multi-messenger astronomy last year. Another, the NASA New Horizons spacecraft, will provide an ensemble flyby of a new world out beyond Pluto. That's beginning January 1st of 2019. And a third of these new efforts will begin in the early 2020s. That's when the James Webb Space Telescope, or the JWST, will open significant horizons for understanding the early universe, other worlds 
and much more. You can join the Fisk Planetarium staff to explore these and other horizons, both physical and philosophical, during a special Parent Weekend public talk at the Fisk Full Dome Immersive Theatre. It's called Stretching Our Horizons and the talk will take place at 7pm on October 4th and on October 5th at the Planetarium on the CU Boulder campus. You can check out their website for directions and details. Ben Goldfarb wants us all to appreciate beavers more. KGN News Beth Bennett spoke with Ben last month about his new book that's amusingly titled Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. In the next 20 minutes, you'll gain a better understanding of beavers' myriad skills and want to restore beaver populations in our local environments. Spoiler alert, we will have copies of this book available during the upcoming membership drive. Welcome to the programme, Ben Goldfarb, and congratulations on your great new book called Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers, which I have to admit, I was so clobbered by all this new information. And I'm, I'm a little bit of an ecologist, so this was really an amazing revelation to me. So um, maybe you could start off by just talking a little bit about the historical density of beavers and what they did to the North American landscape before European settlers arrived? Sure. So that's a, it's a great question to start out with, and, and it's, it's a challenging question because we don't exactly know what the historical density of beavers was. You know, the, the, the one population estimate that exists um, from you know, early America is anywhere from 60 to 400 million beavers uh, in, in North America. Uh, and today there are probably 15 million or so. So, you know, of course, their populations are, are still substantial, but much reduced from their uh, original heyday. And, uh, you know, what all those beavers meant for North American landscapes and ecosystems uh, is another big open question. Uh, but there's no, there's no doubt that you know, the continent was, much, uh, was once a much lusher, wetter, more ponded and wetland-covered place. Uh, you know, you read, you read early explorers' accounts of, of traveling across this continent, and you realize how profound beaver influence was. You know, Lewis and Clark in the Missouri Basin in Montana talk about seeing beaver dams up every tributary as far as they could see to the mountains. You know, there are explorers crossing the state of Indiana, which today is just, you know, cornfields and, uh, and strip malls, um, and, uh, you know, and, and not being able to find a dry place to camp for, for 100 miles because beavers had so thoroughly uh, inundated the landscape. Uh, so there's no question that it was just much a, a, once a much wetter, lusher place. I think that's really surprising to people like me here in Colorado, where we're so used to thinking about these pristine mountain streams as being fairly straight and fairly clean and clear and, you know, no evidence of wetlands. And what a shocker to think this isn't really how it was for most of the history or recent geological history of our area. Yeah, certainly many, you know, many streams that today are, are sort of single channel and straight um, 
would have been would have been wetlands or, or multi-channels. You know, these kind of these more sort of braided type streams that uh, that that beavers help create by you know raising by raising the water level and sort of pushing water onto the floodplain and filling up these these old channels. Um, so yeah, you know, I think that I think that our our historical conception of how Lots of lots of ecosystems worked is is sort of wrong, right? It's it's kind of the what scientists call the shifting baseline syndrome. You know, the notion that each generation forgets a little bit more about you know what what the environment is supposed to look like. You know, we've we've kind of forgotten the vast bison herds that covered the prairies and and the you know the flocks of passenger pigeons that darken the sky. And I, I think that uh, beavers fall into that category too as an animal that was once incredibly influential uh, in North America and, you know, is still present, but is, is certainly much reduced. Yeah, and you've done a great service to the beavers by talking about <laughs> all of the ecosystem services they can provide. And again, in the West, I was just blown away to think that beavers could single-handedly solve a lot of our water problems. And you write pretty extensively about that. And maybe you could talk, there's a story you have about a ranch in Nevada, I believe, where the the recovery from drought was absolutely spectacular after the reintroduction of beavers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and and certainly, I mean, I mean, there's, there's no question that beavers can do a whole lot of good. But you know, I don't, I, I'm a little bit hesitant to, to portray them as as a, a, a panacea or a silver bullet, you know, because of course they're just one in a number of drought-fighting solutions. But you know, there there is no question that they they are very very valuable uh, in many situations. And the story in Nevada is basically that uh, this is in northeast Nevada in Elko County, uh, and and there, uh, you know, many years or more than a century really of, of kind of unmanaged grazing had, had eroded a lot of creeks. You know, the, the cows had kind of stripped the vegetation from the channels and the streams had eroded and basically turned into these, um, you know, often dry kind of uh, seasonal streams rather than perennial streams. Um, and there, you know, the, the Bureau of Land Management with the, ra- with the ranchers' cooperation, uh, you know, kind of changed the grazing management. They just, uh, you know, fenced off some stream sections and just shortened the rotations of the grazing so that the cows weren't, you know, spending the entire summer in the stream. And uh, as a result, the vegetation recovered. And to everybody's surprise, you know, when the, when the, when the willows regrew, the beavers showed up. Uh, and at first, you know, lots of, lots, a lot of the ranchers wanted to kill the beavers. Um, they were sort of uh, skeptical about, about uh, these, these rodents. Um, but they let the beavers live. And, uh, of course, the beavers built dams, and they, and they basically created this spectacular sort of cattail uh, pond and marsh complex where once, you know, there had just been this sort of degraded stream channel and, you know, by slowing water down and keeping water on the landscape, uh, you know, they actually provided a fantastic water source for cattle uh, at a time when, because of drought, you know, many other ranchers who didn't have beavers on their, on their grazing allotments had to actually truck water to their cows or, you know, pull their cows off the range. The guys with the beavers uh, had the had the best water source and they also had the most the most forage for their cattle too. That's another thing that I think we forget is that you know when you, when you look at a beaver pond, there's all of the visible surface water on the, in the pond that you can see, but there's, there's also all this water being forced into the ground by the weight of the pond. Right, and beaver ponds are raising water tables and sub-irrigating uh, the floodplain, so you get really fantastic grass production as well. So so. You know, there in Northeast Nevada, which is a pretty conservative corner of the country, uh, there's this coalition of ranchers that's really come to embrace beavers as this as this cow production and drought fighting solution. Yeah, I think that's a really great point that 
the weight of the ponds could recharge aquifers because that's a big deal, not only in the West, but um, across the country. And I was just a little puzzled as to why there hasn't been more publicity and more attention by water managers paid to that. Yeah, you know, I think a big part of the reason, I think that water managers tend to be uh, skeptical or even fearful of beavers, you know, because, because one of beavers' favorite things to do is to, is to dam an irrigation ditches, right? It's, it's, you know, an irrigation ditch is this, is this nice... A uh, little stream that they can, you know, that they can they can build in. Um, so I think that you know that, that water managers tend to look at beavers as this this meddlesome uh, creature that's a, a pain in the butt because they're always you know clogging up irrigation. Um, and the other thing too is that I think I think that lots of people think that beavers steal water. You know that that, that every drop that's impounded behind a beaver pond. Uh, or behind a beaver dam in a beaver pond is, you know, is one drop of water that's not going to make it to the downstream farmer ranch. But, you know, of course, beaver dams are, they're not impermeable, right? They're still letting some water through. They're just slowing it down. Um, so they're not stealing water. They're just delaying water's progress uh, over the landscape. And they're actually, you know, by, by slowing down the flow of water, you know, they're, they're kind of providing this time-release delayed trickle uh, in the summer and fall when streams are driest and, and, uh, and need water most. You know, I've, I've heard countless stories of beavers showing up in these little seasonal trickles that go dry in summer and turning them into perennial streams by slowing down the flow of water and raising the water table. So there's this, this notion that beavers are water thieves, but, you know, of course, they're, they're really, uh, you know, they're not stealing the water. They're just, they're just sharing it. Right. And even when they do cause problems, like by building a dam um, in a culvert and causing road flooding, there's all kinds of clever solutions. And you wrote a lot about that. Um, but maybe you could explain how that works. And you've got to give some of the names. I love some of the names that these people <laughs> came up with for their creations. Sure. Um, so, yeah, so, so certainly, you know, beavers are these, these kind of meddlesome uh, rodents that, you know, that, right, will build, in, build dams and road culverts and, washed out, and wash out roads or, you know, flood people's backyards or, or what have you. Um, so, you know, the traditional way that, that those kinds of conflicts are handled is by, is by trapping. You know, beaver's causing the problem, get the beaver out of there. Uh, but, of course, when you do that, all you're doing is putting up a vacancy sign for the next family of beavers. Right, the the kind of the ideal solution is is something that lets the beavers remain in place uh, while still solving the problem. So to that end, there are these devices called flow devices, uh, which you often hear, hear referred to as beaver deceivers, um, which uh, are are basically these kind of pipe and fence systems that drain the ponds to a desired level. The pond, uh, the the pipe, uh, which you can pass through the culvert or or through the the beaver the beaver dam. Um, basically, you know, funnels water out of the pond till the pond reaches a level that's kind of desirable for both the landowner and the beaver. Um, and, the, and then the fences, uh, which are placed around the ends of the pipe, generally, uh, basically prevent the beavers from, if they do figure out that the pipe is, the, is what's causing the, the leak in their dam, um, you know, they, the, the, the fences stop the beavers from clogging up the ends of the pipe. So these kinds of flow device uh, solutions are really effective. Uh, in Massachusetts, where they were studied, uh, they found that they were 96% effective. Um, you know, one study in Virginia found that for every dollar you spend on a flow device, you, you returned $8 uh, in avoided trapping and road maintenance costs. Um, so, you know, these, these kinds of non-lethal solutions are, are certainly promising, um, but uh, definitely need much more widespread adoption.
Yeah, and it seems like if people just did cost-benefit analyses, which I know you talk about a little bit in, in your book, that the benefit of reintroducing beavers to so many habitats would become incredibly apparent. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's one report um, by, by uh, kind of an economics consulting firm in, in 2011, which basically found that returning beavers to the Escalante River Basin in Utah, so a single river basin, uh, beavers would provide tens of millions of dollars in, in ecosystem services and, and sort of ecological benefits every year uh, from, you know, from capturing sediment and, and water pollution to providing habitat for the, you know, the fish and wildlife that we love to um, hunt and catch, um, to you know, storing water for for uh, for agricultural use. Um, you know, there's there's just no question that these are these these are incredibly valuable animals that that do all kinds of important things for us if we can figure out a way to let them remain in place and uh, and and do their thing. And it seems like a lot of that really has to do with changing people's perceptions of beavers. I mean, if people just were a little bit educated as to the benefits of the beavers, they'd maybe let go of some of their prejudice against them. And do, have you seen that happen? Like, are there re-education programs for people as opposed to reintroduction programs for beavers? You know, I, th- I think that I think that the, the, the best education is, is just having, you know, having some beaver experience. I mean, for like for me, you know, I, I, I wrote this book and, and I hope that people read it and, and think about beavers in a new way. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just a kind of a lowly writer, right? I mean, the people, the people who control beavers' fates are you know are, are government land managers and uh, and you know the agricultural community in a big way you know farmers and ranchers are, are the ones sort of dealing with these animals most and I think that they're you know the the they don't they don't want to hear from somebody like me they want to hear from you know from other farmers and ranchers uh, who have had beaver experience and learned to live with these animals and actually reaped a lot of benefits from them you know which is why again to refer to return to that Nevada example. You know that there there was sort of this one rancher, this guy named John Griggs, who was kind of the the pioneer when it came to beaver coexistence there, and because he's this respected, influential person in the community, you know suddenly some of his neighbors are starting to look at beavers differently too, because you know John says they're okay. Um, so you know to to me, I just I, I think that the that the best education is just you know. Um, yeah, landowners learning from from people uh, who you know speak their speak their language and who they respect. Right, exactly. And I'm also hoping that maybe um, some of the state agriculture programs. I mean, in, in terms of the universities where agricultural agents and agricultural um, um, state officers are trained, will become more exposed to this information and change their outlook. I hope so too. Yeah, you know, I, th- I think that I think that one of the hard things about working with beavers is that you know is that they just they create these these ecosystems that that don't really square with you know the way we like our ecosystems, right? I mean, we you know we love you know we're we're as humans we're these kind of these fanatical uh, micromanagers of nature. You know, we love to, to kind of straighten streams and you know and channelize rivers and. And uh, you know, we of course we build in the floodplain, right? That's where we put put our our homes and farms is you know in the kind of the fertile lowlands. Um, and you know, those are also the places that beavers love to inhabit. You know, great great human habitat is great beaver habitat. And you know, and, and beavers create these ecosystems that are that are messy. You know, that 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 are full of of side channels and 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 pools uh, all over the place. And there you know, there's there are jumbles of downed trees everywhere and and uh, you know, there's there's sediment 
uh, accumulating on the on the floors of these ponds. You know, they're just not really, you know, the, they're not really the kinds of systems that we as humans tend to to value most uh, in a landscape. But you know, the, I guess the point of the point of the book and the point of so much beaver research now is that you know those kinds of messy seeming systems, uh, you know, are just incredibly vibrant and vital for for life in the American West. Um, and that that's, those are the kinds of systems that we should be uh, embracing. And interestingly, you draw the analogy to the wolf reintroduction in Yellowstone and how everybody knows about this. I mean, I've been hearing about this for years and how the wolves changed the habitat and even the geology. But then we don't hear anything about what beavers do in Yellowstone. Yeah, it's, it's, it's true. You know, I think that those, you know, those two animals working in concert together is a really interesting dynamic. You know, the beavers, or the, the wolves rather, sort of, uh, you know, reducing the densities of, of ungulates, mostly elk out there, um, and that allowing the, the vegetation to regrow and the return of vegetation, allowing beavers to, you know, to, to return to some of these, these streams um, is a really interesting, you know, sort of example of two keystone species acting in concert. Um, to to rehabilitate a landscape, at least in some places in Yellowstone, right? Um, which is but, a really yeah. That that's such an unusual concept to think about two keystone species acting together and then having this nonlinear effect on the ecosystem. Like you talk about how there's some valleys that, even with wolves around, they're not going to be restored because there's no beavers there. Right. Exactly. You know, and that and that some streams have just degraded too much to support beavers uh, again, or at least to support them in the, in the near, in the near future. You know, the story in the story in Yellowstone and the story in so much of the American West, right, is that we basically wiped out all of the predators and created these enormous grazer populations, right? I mean, that's elk and deer, uh, and also, of course, lots of, of domestic grazers, you know, in the form of cattle and sheep. And, you know, and those, and all of those, all of those hungry mouths and sharp hooves, you know, basically eliminated a lot of the streamside vegetation that beavers need to survive, and, and that if we're going to get beavers back into uh, a lot of systems in the American West, you know, we're going to have to get the grazing issue figured out, whether that's with more, um, you know, in the case of domestic uh, livestock, you know, whether that's with sort of more um, aggressive or, or assertive cowboying, you know, just moving moving the, the cattle around the landscape uh, instead of letting them hang out in the streams all summer long. Um, and in the case of, you know, in the case of, of the wild ungulates, the, the elk and the deer, you know, that might require getting some carnivores back in the system and controlling the populations that way. Um, but I think that the, you know, the kind of the important point is that good beaver management is really good land management, you know, and that means controlling grazing and, and letting, uh, letting vegetation regenerate so that this incredibly valuable rodent has something to eat and build with. Exactly. So you've been talking to people across the country for years um, in your research for this book. What's your prediction at this point in terms of the future of the beaver and their role in the American West? Yeah, it's, you know, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I, think, I think it depends on the place. You know, I think that, I think that one of the interesting things to me has been seeing just how different, uh, different states deal with beaver issues. You know, Washington, for example, is a really progressive beaver state, and the reason for that is that beavers create fantastic salmon habitat. You know, they build these wonderful uh, deep, cold pools where, where juvenile salmon can take shelter and grow up. Uh, so in Washington, you know, the beaver-salmon connection has led to lots of interest in beaver recovery, and they have all kinds of sort of progressive beaver laws that allow the relocation of beavers. 
Um, and, you know, they're really fo- focused on coexistence. So, you know, so in a place like Washington, I think that Beaver's future is, is uh, hopefully pretty bright. Um, but, you know, just a couple states down in California, uh, you know, there's lots of beaver resistance um, for sort of complex historical reasons. Uh, you know, California is obviously a very agricultural state. Uh, and, you know, I think that lots of, lots of agricultural lobbies and, and uh, you know, and farmers there are, are very concerned about, about beavers uh, as this kind of meddler uh, in, in, in irrigation systems. Um, so there, you know, there's, there's uh, kind of this staunch anti-beaver uh, resistance, you know. So it, it's, it's just, yeah, it's just so state by state. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to make a prediction about, about the future of this animal across the West. But certainly I would say that the general trajectory is, is definitely positive. There is this growing realization among the, you know, the quote-unquote beaver believers, um, right. <laughs> which I am one, uh, that you know, this is an important animal and we, we need to get it back. And hopefully we'll get a little more of that information out and we'll create a few more beaver believers from this show. Thank you so much for talking, Ben Goldfarb. That was a great um, amount of information and we'll link to your book on our website. And that was author Ben Goldfarb talking about his new book about beavers. It's a fascinating series of stories about the history of beavers, both in their ecological roles and how we humans have disrupted their habitats. And we end up learning that we may need to restore them in order to live in many of the habitats, habitats that we have disturbed. He spoke there with KGNU's Beth Bennett. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett, who also produced this week's show. I'm Maeve Conran and I engineered today. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the theme song composer David Kahn, who died recently at the age of 98. You can visit our website, howonearthradio.org, to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you've questions or comments, you can call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Maeve Conran.